0: We are in chapter 65 of the book of Isaiah tonight. There are only two chapters left in the book of Isaiah, and then we will be able to say that we have looked at every single verse in the book of Isaiah, which is no small undertaking, and it's taken us a while to do, but I'm happy that we have invested the time to look at what the book of Isaiah actually says. The last two chapters of the book of Isaiah are, in so many ways, a summation of the whole book, and it's almost like the book ends with a grand ta-da, because God is going to recount, from his point of view, the history of his dealings with Israel and his promises for a future for Israel. So if you don't mind, I would like to... Just talk about having a biblical theology for just a moment, because this is kind of a teachable moment. You know that I contend over and over again that to have a truly, genuinely biblical theology, you have to know, number one, what the Bible actually says, and then number two, you have to bring your thinking in league with what the Bible actually says. So often, theologies are developed as a result of intellectual systematic exercises that result in having thoughts about the Bible or systems about the Bible, theologies about the Bible, that end up saying something very different than what the Bible actually says. Can you give us an example, Jim? Yes, I will. I was watching a video the last couple of days from a relatively well-known, reformed, postmillennial guy. And he was using Isaiah, the standard portions of Isaiah, that pretty much everybody knows and pretty much everybody goes to. And he was using Isaiah to defend his postmillennial reconstructionist theology which results in saying that Israel is punished by God, scattered by God, and therefore God is essentially done with Israel. And the terminology of Israel in the New Testament is just another reference to the church. Israel is the church, the church is Israel, all of that Israel replacement kind of talk. And he was coming to those conclusions about God being finished with Israel from the book of Isaiah. Now, to my way of thinking, it makes no sense to use a book that repeatedly, consistently promises national Israel a future restoration, regathering, reestablishment, and glorious future. You can't use that book to say that God is done with Israel. The only way to come to that conclusion is to truncate what the book of Isaiah actually says and insert or overlay your system of theology over it because I hope you have seen now through these many, many months of going through the book of Isaiah, I hope you have seen that there is a very consistent theme going on in the book of Isaiah and that theme is repeated over and over again And that theme is, yes, Israel has sinned. Yes, they have rebelled. And yes, God is going to correct them. And yes, God is going to punish them. But the one thing he is not going to do is lose them utterly and completely. He's going to regather them. He's going to reestablish them. And they have this glorious future that Isaiah keeps referring to. And in these last two chapters, it's going to loom very large. Isaiah is going to wrap up this whole book with that exact theology. God is going to say that in his history of dealing with Israel, that they have been nothing but guilty. And so he is going to punish them. But then by the time you get to verse 17 of chapter 65, you're talking about new heaven, new earth, and new Jerusalem, and the regathering of Israel, and the establishment of their future glorious kingdom, And so my way of thinking, stop me if this is too confusing, my way of thinking is you really should not be allowed to use a book like Isaiah to say that God is done with Israel because that conclusion is the exact opposite of what Isaiah actually says. And when you remove all of the theological systems, when you take away the grid that people impose onto the Bible and just pay attention to what the Bible actually says, that's the best way to actually establish a biblical theology. If you're thinking about the Bible is really close to what the Bible actually says, well done you, you're doing really good. But if your theological or eschatological grid causes you to conclude the opposite of what all the Old Testament prophets have said will then go back and rethink your system and remove the grid and pay attention to what the Bible actually says. Is that too complicated? No. So I just thought it was ironic or providential on God's part that right at this moment as we're finishing the book of Isaiah that I would happen across this post-millennial video where they were using Isaiah to say the exact opposite of what Isaiah says. And I say, no fair, you really shouldn't get to do that. Yes, sir? Don Tyndall used to talk about one of his professors when he was in college, who studied the Bible for hours and hours every day, and said in his presence, It seems like every time I have everything in its place, I read another verse that throws my whole system out of whack. I have to start over again and look at what the Bible actually says. And I'm thinking, this is a guy who's, you know, in his 60s, has been teaching for many years, pastor for many years, and he's willing to say the Bible's authoritative, not me. Right. Go back and rethink again if the Bible says something that isn't what you think. I agree with that. Okay, so all that was just to get that thought off my chest and just say it out loud. We can now start in Isaiah 65. The first portion of Isaiah 65 is God speaking from his perspective about how he even came to reveal himself to Israel. And as he has said to them repeatedly, it's not because you were the greatest of people or the greatest in number. It's not because you were the good people or the righteous people. In fact, he starts out by saying, I permitted myself, this is astounding sovereignty, I permitted myself to be sought And who did he permit himself to be sought by? By those who did not even ask for me. Well, earlier in the book of Isaiah, we've already read that there was no one who stirred himself up to seek after God. Look at just the previous chapter, back in verse 7. There's no one who calls on your name. There's no one who arouses himself to, to take a hold of you. So here is this people group, Whether you're starting with Abraham in Ur of the Chaldees, living with his father who's an idol maker, and then God introduces himself to Abraham, actually imposes himself on Abraham and starts right away by taking the attitude of I'm God, you're not, therefore I'm going to tell you what to do. You pack up what you've got, you take your family, and you start walking, and when you get to the place I'm sending you to, I'll let you know you're there. And Abraham did it. Or whether you're talking about Israel as a people group, after 400 years in Egypt, they weren't looking for Yahweh, and yet God sent them Moses, a deliverer. So the whole history of God's dealings with Israel is that God kept Allowing himself to be known, to be sought by people who weren't asking about him. They didn't want him. Not only were they incapable of stirring themselves up to seek him, but they had no interest. And so God says, the only reason that they know anything about me is that I permitted it. I permitted and allowed myself to be sought by those who didn't even ask for me. I permitted myself to be found by those who weren't even seeking me. Do you remember a few years ago, maybe a couple of decades ago, there was a movement within the modern evangelical church known as the seeker-sensitive movement. Remember that? That idea was that within the church you didn't want to say or do anything that might be off-putting to someone who might be sensitive to the possibility of maybe there was a god and they were kind of seeking him and if you found somebody in that condition you didn't want to put them off by saying anything like election or predestination or sound theology about god being in charge and so there was this movement where biblical theology kept being dumbed down on behalf of the seekers If we've seen anything from last week or tonight, God says, there's nobody seeking me. Nobody ever stirred himself up to look for me. And by the way, as we saw last week, Paul transferred that thinking into the book of Romans in order to say that there's none that does good. No, not one. There's nobody that stirred himself up to seek after me. So that whole idea of seeker-sensitive puts the emphasis on the sinner, the human being, the blinded person, and says that they are the cause of the relationship between themselves and God. Here God himself, defending himself, says, no, nobody ever sought me. If anybody ever found me, it's because I allowed myself to be found by them. That's absolute sovereignty. I permitted myself to be found by those who did not seek me, I said, here I am, here I am. That's the opposite of people going out looking for God and saying, oh, there he is. There was a bumper sticker that I recall probably back in my college days saying, uh, I found Jesus. I found Jesus. Oh, hey, hey. And I can remember even in those days thinking, he wasn't lost. You didn't find him. If you know anything about him, he found you. He's the one that sought you and called you and redeemed you. And so God said, the only reason that anybody knows me is because I allowed it, I permitted it, and then I caused it by saying, here I am. That's why I use the language oftentimes of God introduced himself to like Abraham or to Moses or to you. Because you didn't go find God. God called you to himself and then introduced himself to you. I said, here am I, here am I, to a nation that did not call on my name. How clear is that? So they were not calling on him. They did not stir themselves up. They were not looking for him. And yet he revealed himself to them He permitted them to know him. And so he's obviously doing all this for his own reasons, his own purposes, and his own glory. He is certainly not revealing himself to human beings for the glory of the person. He is not revealing himself to people so that they can make a bumper sticker about it. He is revealing himself to particular people on purpose, introducing himself to those people and saying plainly and clearly that when he introduced himself to Israel, they were not looking for him. So we often talk about God's sovereignty in election and that we are saved without works. We emphasize that just like Paul did, that it is not our works that saved us. Therefore, I like to say, if your works did not get you saved, can your works get you unsaved? Because it wasn't your works that got you saved to begin with. So if God saved you despite your works and knowing what you were like, will the fact that you're like that cause him to say, oh, never mind. I didn't know you'd be like that. Well, of course, he knew what you were like, and he saved you anyway. Does that same principle apply to the nation of Israel to whom he just said to a nation that was not calling on my name. I revealed myself to them. I'm the one who said here I am to them and they weren't looking for me and they weren't calling for me. So if their works and their knowledge of God was not the reason that God called them, redeemed them, saved them, made them his people Well, then, can their lack of good behavior toward God, can their lack of knowledge about God be the reason that he gives up on them? The answer is no. Because they were in that state when he chose them. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay, it made sense to Tom. Does that make sense to anyone else? Yes. Isaiah was called as a prophet. He was told they won't listen. They're not going to listen. But you're going to go tell them. I permitted myself to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I permitted myself to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am to a nation which did not call on my name. If you know nothing else about sovereign election, that verse right there is enough to convince you that it's not about the individual seeking God who we have already established in the previous chapter, that there's no one who ever called God. There's no one who ever called on his name. No one who ever stirred himself to seek for God. And then God says, I permitted myself to be sought by those who weren't even asking for me. I permitted myself to be found by those who weren't even seeking me. I said, here am I, here am I. So who is the instigator of the relationship between God and any human being? God God himself. It can't be people, because people aren't looking for him, don't have the capability. And then he, as I said, he's he's talking here about his history in relationship to Israel. So he says, to a nation that did not call on my name, I have spread out my hands all day long to a rebellious people. Okay, so does he know that there are sinful, rebellious people on the front end? Yes. Yeah, he said so. And yet, he said, here I am, here I am. He allowed himself to be known by these people who are rebellious. He knew what they were like. He knew they were not calling on him. He knew, and yet, sovereign mercy, sovereign election, that's the people he chose, I spread out my hands all day long to this rebellious people who walk in a way which is not good, following their own thoughts. Now, that kind of reestablishes what we already believe about, about the fact that human beings are just totally depraved. Because here is God saying, they don't do any good. They walk in a way which is not good. And how does he define that way? They walk after their own thoughts. So human thoughts, God just said, are no good. Because your thoughts, your proclivities, your flesh is going to lead you away from God. The only thing that can lead you toward God is for God to allow you to know him and then introduce himself to you. Open his arms to you, even though you're a rebellious person whose own thoughts are no good. Now, as I said that, everybody in the room was nodding like, yeah, boy, that's true. That's me dead to rights, yeah. Except here, he's saying that's the case with Israel. Israel as a nation is a rebellious, stiff-necked, hard-hearted people who were following after their own thoughts Verse 3 says, they are a people who continually provoke me to my face, offering sacrifices in the gardens and burning incense on the bricks. And they sit among the graves and they spend the night in the secret places and they eat swine's flesh and the broth of unclean meats is in their pots. They say to him, this is their response to him, they say, Keep to yourself and do not come near me, for I am holier than you. His response to them is, these are smoke in my nostrils. These burn. Have you ever been outside during a bonfire? You got a fire going in the backyard. You get too close to the fire. The smoke gets up your nose. That's not a pleasant feeling. And God says, that's what these people are like to me. Do you think he knew that was what they were like when he chose them? Yeah, because he said they're they're rebellious people. They follow their own thoughts. And then their behavior is such that it's a provocation to God, to his very face, because he has introduced himself as Yahweh, the only God that is. And meanwhile, they're sacrificing in the groves and up on the mountains. They're sacrificing in the gardens and burning incense on the bricks to all these foreign gods. And they And they're dark, they're among the dead, and they sit among the graves, and they spend the night in their secret places, and they're eating unclean foods and swine's flesh, and then when it comes to God, they say, keep to yourself and don't come near me, because I'm better than you are, I'm holier than you are, I I will do what I want to do, and God says, they are smoke in my nostrils, they're like a fire that burns all day long. Verse 6 then says, Behold, it is written before me. Very interesting phrase. This is God's way of saying, I have already spoken it. And when I spoke it, it was written down. And since it is written down by my prophets and written down in the annals of heaven, because it is written down, it can't be changed. And behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silent, but I will repay. God has already said that. God has already declared, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. God has already declared that he is not going to let Israel get away with this. Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silent, but I will repay. And I will even repay into their bosom. They're going to be the recipients of the ire and the wrath of God. And both their own iniquities and the iniquities of their fathers together, says the Lord. So God is going to repay what they have done as a nation, generation after generation, culminating in what we're talking about on Sunday mornings, the coming time of trouble, such as never was or ever would be again. The time that Jeremiah refers to as the time of Jacob's trouble that time of trouble that Daniel describes. And here is God saying that he is going to pour out, repay because of their iniquities and because of their father's iniquities together, because they have burned incense on the mountains. And they scorned me on the hills. God takes this very, very personally and says, because they have gone and worshipped other gods up on the mountains, it's not like they have convinced me that they love me and the foreign gods. He says, if you're chasing other gods, you hate me. You either love me, I am the one and only God. That is the very first commandment of no other gods before me. If I'm here, if I'm the god that you are before, you don't get any other gods. No other gods before me. And so he says... That as they burn incense on the mountains, they have hated him on the hills. Therefore, I will measure their former work into their bosoms. So now, this is a summation of God's dealings with Israel from the very beginning. How it is that they came into relationship with each other. Then he has described their sinfulness their treachery, their chasing after other gods, their hatred toward him, and the fact that he is going to punish them, he is going to repay them, he is going to take vengeance against them. So does that mean that he is going to wipe them out completely? Now God's going to answer that question. Verse 8, thus says the Lord, as the new wine is found in the cluster, and one says, Do not destroy it, for there is some benefit in it. Basically, the parallel that he's drawing here is he says, if you have a cluster of grapes, and it's a bad cluster, it's not a good cluster of grapes, there may still be some good grapes in that cluster, which means there is still some good wine in there. So therefore, don't just take the whole cluster and throw it away. Get the good grapes out. As the new wine is found in the cluster and one says, do not destroy it, for there is benefit in it, in that very same way, I will act on behalf of my servants in order not to destroy all of them. There's your answer. Is God done with Israel? Is he going to destroy all of Israel? Is he finished with them completely, entirely? It's all over? No, absolutely not. What he said here is the same way that there are good grapes in a bad cluster. There are still people within Israel who are my servants. And I'm not going to destroy them. I'm going to destroy my enemies within Israel. I'm going to punish Israel. And the punishment, as we continue going through the book of Revelation, as you're going to see, the punishment is fearsome. Wrath of God. But not for the purpose of completely wiping them out. Because God still has promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Which are unconditional promises that still have to come to their fulfillment. And that's why the book of Isaiah keeps talking about the glorious future of Israel. So God says, I am not going to destroy all of them. And here's what he's going to do. This is very eschatological. I will bring forth... Offspring from Jacob. Who's Jacob? Israel. Is that the church? No. No. Where in the Bible is the church ever referred to as Jacob? Nowhere. Nowhere. I will bring forth offspring from Jacob and an heir of my mountains from Judah. That's a direct reference to Christ. I'm going to bring forth the one who is going to inherit the majesty and the mountains, the power, the dominion in Jerusalem. And he's going to come from Judah, the lion of the tribe of Judah. So I will bring forth offspring from Jacob and an heir of my mountains from Judah. And by the way, notice that when he talks about Jacob and Judah as two different groups, he's talking about the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And he's saying, I'm going to bring about a future and in-gathering descendants of the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, consistent with everything else we've read in the book of Isaiah. I will bring forth offspring from Jacob and an heir of my mountains from Judah. Even my chosen ones shall inherit. There, there's sovereign election again. Within Israel... Just like Paul says in Romans 9, 10, and 11, there is a remnant, and that remnant God is going to preserve and God is going to deliver into this glorious future that he has planned for them. And by the way, some of that remnant, according to Paul in Romans 11, he says, as touching the gospel, they're enemies for your sake. So are they the church? No, where is the church ever called the enemies of the gospel? But in defending a future for Israel, Paul in the book of Romans in the New Testament after the cross says that some of them, as touching the gospel, are enemies for the sake of the Gentiles. Enemies of the gospel, boy, that's really bad. They are enemies of the gospel, they are opposed to the gospel. And then Paul says... But as touching the election, they are beloved for the father's sakes. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, because of the promises made to them, God still loves this gospel enemy group because they are the heirs of the promises that God has made to Israel. They're not the church, but they are still Israel that God has promised a glorious future. Do you see the distinctions? And and I can't help that that's just what the Bible says. Even my chosen ones shall inherit it, and my servants shall dwell there. Where? In the mountains of Judah. There's the land promise. So part of that glorious future is the ingathering of the northern tribes and the southern tribes back to Jerusalem, to worship God, Christ sitting on David's throne, ruling from Jerusalem, those are the chosen ones who are going to inherit it. And this is what it's going to look like in verse 10. Sharon shall be a pasture land for the flocks. The valley of Acor will be a resting place for the herds and my people who seek me. In other words, there's going to be rest all around and there's going to be pasture land. And that's all around Jerusalem. That's where Sharon and Akor are. Those are the lands around Jerusalem. So God is again promising this glorious future for Israel and Judah, coming back to their land, being established, being at rest, being at peace, living in pasture land. And God says, it's for my people. But, verse 11, but you who forsake the Lord, Who forget my holy mountain? Who set a table for fortune? And who fill cups with mixed wine for destiny? Depending on your translations there, it might say that you set a table for gad. Gad means a troop, but gad is also a a god. Baal gad was actually a god. And so the translation, the NASB, went with fortune. People who are looking to anything else other than God to secure their own future, like fortune or destiny or fate. If those are the things that you're looking for and expecting that fate and destiny control your future, then you are, according to God here, setting a table to these foreign gods. You're filling cups with mixed wine for destiny And then a little play on words, since you're so interested in chasing after anything other than me to find your destiny, I will destine you for the sword. You think it's up to your foreign gods to destine you, it's in fact up to me to destine you, and I will destine you for destruction. And all of you will bow down to the slaughter, because I called and you did not answer. I spoke, and you did not hear, and you did evil in my sight, and you chose that in which I did not delight. Okay, there's the situation so far. God chose Israel, revealed himself to Israel. He knew they were a rebellious people when he chose them. They continued in their rebellion, There is a remnant among them that is still God's people, still chasing after, still worshiping Yahweh. He makes a division between those that are his people, those people who are still seeking after him as he's revealing himself to them, and people who have forsaken him, become his enemies, and he is going to punish the ones who are his enemies, And he's going to establish the ones that are his. Therefore, knowing all that, with that as a background, therefore, thus says the Lord God. Now he's going to create that division. He's going to make the division very obvious, very big. Behold, my servants shall eat, but you, my enemies, shall be hungry. Behold, my servants shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. Behold, my servants shall rejoice, and you shall be put to shame. Behold, my servants shall shout joyfully with a glad heart, and you will cry with a heavy heart. And you will wail with a broken spirit, and you will leave your name for a curse to my chosen ones. So here is God picking and choosing, dividing, even within Israel, between his own elect remnant and the ones that he is going to punish. So then it is no surprise when you start reading about the tribulation to come, the time of trouble such as never was, ever would be again, the day of God's wrath, the outpouring of his day of the Lord. That all occurs because it's the time of Jacob's trouble. God is finally pouring out his vengeance against those who have remained his enemies. And yet, even within that nation, in order not to cut them off entirely because of promises he has made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he has kept for himself a remnant within Israel, his chosen ones, his blessed ones. And he's very clear about that division. And then they are going to be a curse to the chosen ones, and the Lord God will slay you. But my servants will be called... By another name. That is so interesting after everything we've been reading out of the first seven letters to the seven churches. Jesus said that those who overcame he was going to give them a new white stone with a new name on it. Well that's all the way back here in Isaiah. That the servants are going to be called by this new name. Because he who is blessed in the earth blessed by God, chosen by God, saved by God, shall be blessed by the God of truth. And he who swears in the earth shall swear by the God of truth. That means take your vows. That means make your promises. You don't get to do that to foreign gods. You don't get to do that to wood and stone and metal. If you're going to make vows, if you're going to make promises, you swear to the God of truth because the former troubles are forgotten and because they are hidden from my sight. Oh, astounding. So God said, these people who have been so blessed as to be separated for my own sake so that I don't have to cut Israel off altogether, those who are blessed in the earth are blessed because of me. I'm the one who blessed you. I'm the one who took care of you. I'm the one who taught you the truth. If you make promises, if you make vows, don't make them to foreign gods, make them to me. And the reason that you're going to worship me and the reason you're going to be separated to me is because I have redeemed you. I have forgiven you. Through Christ, I have established you. And look at this. Everything he has listed so far in chapter 64 and 65 about the rebellion and the sin and the hatefulness of Israel culminates in the former troubles are forgotten. I love that phrase. I can't wait until my former troubles are forgotten, because I know my former troubles, and I remember them every day. I think about David saying, my sin is continually before me. Wouldn't it be great to reach the point where you get to lay down this fleshly body and this fleshly mind, and those former things and those former sins and those former rebellions? just don't come up again, God's just done with them because of the completion of the redemptive work of Christ, because the former troubles are forgotten, and because they are hidden from my sight. Okay, so now God's got a remnant, they were part of Israel, they were rebellious just like the rest. And yet God has separated them, he has blessed them in the earth, he has introduced himself to them, and then he has redeemed them in such a way that they are going to be in his presence and the way that they were, the way that they acted, their former sins are no longer going to be brought up, cast into the sea of God's forgetfulness, and then hidden completely from the sight of God. I love the thought of my depravity, my sin, my rebellion, because I got years and years of that rebellion stacked up. Even if I could really, really clean myself up right now at this moment, even if I did really good for the rest of my life, if I just really got holy and righteous, starting right now, I still have to deal with the fact that I got 66 years of rebellion behind me. What do I do about that? I can't fix that. And here is God saying, those former things are going to be forgotten and hidden from my sight. I'm not even going to bring it up. You're not even going to have to answer for it. You're just accepted in the magnificent grace of God. What a wonderful promise that every one of us in this room would say, yes, give me that. Where's the line for that? I want that. And yet that's the promise in context that is made to Israel. And you can't deny them that. That God is one day going to also forget their former troubles, which God has listed in detail. And then, starting in verse 17, the introduction of the new heavens and the new earth. Peter writes about a new heaven and a new earth, and I think he's basing his thoughts, what he's writing, on what Isaiah says here. When we get to Revelation 21, someday in the distant future, when we get to that passage, new heavens, new earth. So this is a consistent promise from Isaiah 65 all the way to the end of the book of Revelation. It is a firm promise from God that there is going to be a new heaven, And a new earth. But now to read the end of this chapter, we have to remember what we've seen throughout the book of Isaiah. When I introduced the book of Isaiah to you, I said you have to remember that he was looking into the future the same way that we might look into mountain ranges. And we don't see the valleys in between, we just see a continual series of mountains. It's the same thing. Isaiah sees these very compressed promises for the future. And he sees them all as one big part of the whole. Even Jesus makes that obvious when he reads from the scroll of Isaiah and stops reading mid-sentence so that he can say, today this is fulfilled in your hearing. So he demonstrates to us that Isaiah sometimes sees these prophetic future things as being one large, collective, compressed whole, when in fact, as we continue reading, we see that these things are separated out. Does that make sense? Because people have, commentators have, or even critics of the Bible have, taken this portion of Isaiah out of context and said, well, it looks like he's talking about the new heaven and earth, but then it looks like he's talking about the millennium, And then he's saying in the new heaven and the new earth, there's going to be birth and death. And how does that work? And it's because we've already seen all the way through the book how Isaiah sees future events as one compressed thing. So yes, there's going to be things in here where we're going to say, now is that new heaven, new earth stuff? Or is that millennium stuff? And the answer is yes. And it will become fairly obvious to you as you hear them. As you read these details, it'll become pretty obvious to you which of those two categories Isaiah is talking about. But they are compressed into this ending of chapter 65, building up to this grand finale of the book of Isaiah. Starting in verse 17, For behold, I create new heavens and new earth, This is part of God describing how it can be that the former troubles are forgotten and hidden from his sight. He's even going to take everything on the earth, Peter says, burn it with fire, destroy the elements with an intense heat, and then create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. This sinful planet, which is growing Weeds, ever since the sin of Adam and Eve, this sinful planet that is full of bloodshed and hatred, this sinful planet is going to be purified by God, who is going to make a new heavens and a new earth. By the way, in Hebrew thinking, carried over into Greek thinking, there are levels of heaven, three in particular. So, and they're all referred to as the heavens. So, you have to realize that God is not saying, I'm going to make a new heaven where I sit because there's something wrong with my heaven, so I'm going to remake it. That's not what Isaiah is saying here. The first heaven is the atmosphere where the birds fly, up in the clouds. Those are the heavens. And then beyond that, into outer space where the stars are, that's the second heaven. Then Paul says, I know a man who went into the third heaven. That's the heaven where God is. So when God creates the new earth, he's going to create a new atmosphere because even the atmosphere around our current planet, that atmosphere has been destroyed, has been torn down. And so he's going to create a new living environment for human beings, a new heaven and a new earth. And those former things, even the former earth, are not going to be remembered or come to mind But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For I behold and create Jerusalem for rejoicing. And then we get to Revelation 21 and 22 and we read about the new Jerusalem in keeping with the promise that Isaiah saw 700 years before Christ that God is going to make a new heaven and a new earth. And you'll notice that he didn't mention a new Miami, Florida, or a new Pakistan, or a new Australia, or a new. He mentioned one city and one city only, a new Jerusalem, because that's the place where he chose to place his name. That's the place where his worship emanates from. That is the city where Christ is going to rule and reign. And therefore, that is the city. Out of all the cities that ever existed on planet Earth, that's the one that God says, I'm going to make a new one of those. Because he is not going to allow human beings to destroy the proper worship of God. He is going to establish the new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem, the new temple, all of that, because he ultimately is going to for lack of a better word, win. He's going to make new humans with new bodies that have new names so that they can worship him in spirit and in truth. He is not going to be defeated by the inferior sinful mind plans and destinations of human beings. And as much as human beings on the planet have destroyed everything good that he has made on the planet, he's going to remake it and make it all good so that his ultimate plan comes to fruition regardless of what human beings have done to it through history. That's a really sovereign God. Yes. I don't know about you. I want to be part of that. I want to see that. To take up residence in the new Jerusalem? So be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing. And there hasn't been much rejoicing in Jerusalem for a long time. There's been war and bloodshed and bombs. And and one day it's going to be at peace and full of rejoicing. And I make her people, the people he's making for the new Jerusalem, I make them for gladness. That's why God created human beings. To love and enjoy him. And live in gladness and peace with him forever. That's his ultimate goal. His plan isn't to always contend with human beings. His plan is to live at peace with them. I will also. Look at verse 19. I will also rejoice in Jerusalem. And be glad in my people. You're going to see the same thing. At the end of the book of Revelation. That God is going to. Be the light. There's not going to be a sun or a moon. There's no necessity because God himself is going to be the light of Jerusalem. And he is going to be there interacting in joy and peace and love with his people. I will also rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. And there will no longer be heard in her the voice of weeping or the sound of crying. John says God's going to wipe away every tear There'll be no more sin, no more death. that just all sounds really good. There'll be no more voice of weeping and no more sound of crying and no longer will there be in it an infant who lives only a few days or an old man who does not live out his days. For the youth will die at the age of 100. So if you die before 100 years, you died young. And the one who does not reach the age of 100 shall be thought to be accursed. So not only is there going to be peace and happiness, but there's going to be long life. Now, this is, of course, one of the places that I talked about a moment ago. I was preparing you for the idea that that Isaiah is going to mix and match some things that later on, as we study more about the millennium versus the age to come, we're going to see that in the age to come as Jesus said there's no marriage or given in marriage and there's we're going to be like the angels it's clear that in the age to come and the new Jerusalem was full of resurrected saints and stuff there's going to be no death but during the millennium which is the last part of this age there is still going to be death but while Christ the son of god is on the planet there's going to be this restoration of long life just like there was in the old testament Before the flood. No longer will there be in it, in this new Jerusalem, an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his days, for the youth shall die at the age of 100, and the one who does not reach the age of 100 shall be thought to be accursed. And they shall build homes and inhabit them. And they shall also plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat, which, by the way, is the history of Israel, that their enemies kept coming in and taking over their land and taking their houses and taking their food and taking their vineyards. God is saying they're going to live at peace. For as the lifetime of a tree, how long does a tree live? A good, solid tree has a good, long life, a whole lot longer than human life. God compares that and says, For as the lifetime of a tree, so shall the days of my people be. And my chosen ones shall wear out the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they are the offspring of the blessed by the Lord and their descendants with them. I have to ask this question again. It's an obvious question. It's a redundant question. But I have to ask it again. Who's God talking about? Israel. He's talking about Israel. Does it sound like He's done with them? No. Does it sound like He's finished with them, going to cut them off forever? That's the end of it. Now His attention is all on the church. And uh, any reference in the New Testament to Israel is a reference to the church. Can that possibly be consistent? with everything we've read in Isaiah? Well, the answer is no. No, it can't be. It's very inconsistent. That's why I started tonight by saying, in order to have a biblical theology, we have to start with, what does the Bible say? And then regardless of how our system might buck up against those things we have to remove the grid of our systems and our theologies and our eschatologies and pay attention to what the bible actually says and then bring our thinking in league with what it actually says and whatever theology or eschatology we develop from that point it has to be consistent with what the bible says and what it says over and over and over and over again is there's this glorious future for israel I was talking about the new Jerusalem, and I was talking about living at peace, and every one of us here said, yeah, I want a part of that. I want to be in that. There's nobody in here who said, no, that, I'm good. I don't care for that. We all want to be part of that. But who does it belong to? Israel. God. <laughs> good answer. It, it all belongs to Israel, and that's why it's so important to understand the New Testament concept of Gentile adoption into the family of God. Astounding grace, sovereign grace that brought us into relationship, covenant promise, faith in God. But Paul was very clear to say, don't you wild branches start bragging against the natural branches as if God cut them off in order to get to you because you're so important. So we have to keep our biblical thinking straight, which is God is not finished with Israel. He has a plan for a glorious future for Israel. And as part of that, he's going to allow his elect Gentiles to also be part of that. But don't ever start thinking that we are now the apple of God's eye and that he's finished with Israel. Because it's not what Isaiah says. Is that plain enough? I know I keep pounding away at this, but... That's what Isaiah says. Verse 24. It will come to pass. Remember earlier, nobody was looking for him. The beginning of the chapter, nobody was seeking him. He was saying, here I am, here I am. It will come to pass that before they even call, I'm going to answer. And while they are still speaking, I'll hear them. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like an ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food, and they shall do no evil and no harm in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. That's what new Jerusalem is going to be like. That's what new heaven and new earth is going to be like. God is going to change the natural order of things so that there is peace on his planet. I mean, can you imagine lions becoming herbivores? And yet that's what's promised here. Isaiah has already explained it to greater detail, as has Ezekiel. I mean, even little children are going to be able to play on the the dens of the cockatrices, poison snakes, and nothing's going to hurt or harm in all my holy mountain. When God says peace, he means peace. When he says that there's going to be harmony in his world, there's going to be harmony in his world. Starting next week, we will look at chapter 66, which is the grand summation and culmination and grand finale of the whole book. And it just gets gooder and gooder because by the time you get to 66.10, it says, be joyful with Jerusalem and rejoice for her, all you who love her, Be exceedingly glad with her, all you who mourn over her, so that you may nurse and be satisfied with her comforting breasts, so that you may suck and be delighted with her bountiful bosom. For thus says the Lord Behold, I extend peace to her like a river, and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream. And then he's going to describe how all the Gentile nations are going to receive blessings because God blesses Jerusalem, and out from Jerusalem come the blessings to the nations. It's a really wonderful way to wrap up a book. To a people who are in bondage at this moment in Babylon, and the northern tribes are scattered up into Assyria and have remained in that state ever since, and yet God says... I'm going to regather them. Every place that I scattered them, I know where they are, and I'm going to gather them again, and I'm going to reestablish them in the land that I promised them, going all the way back to the Abrahamic covenant. This is a God who is in charge of human history so that it will all redound to his glory. And that's a biblical theology because it redounds to the glory of God.